Well, good morning, everybody. So good to be with you today. Uh, if it's your first time, my name is Joel. I'm uh, the associate pastor here. And, uh, you know, really glad that you're spending your morning with us. Uh, before I jump into this, one thing uh, Chad asked me to, to tell you. Uh, this service is awesome. Like, since the year started, it's just packed every week. And it's a great problem to have. We know that that means that parking can get a little crazy and that our kids' ministry classes are getting full, and sometimes we have to turn some kids away. We're aware of that. We're actively working on solutions to alleviate that right now, which probably means more work for me, but that's okay. Uh, and we're excited, and, and all that is to say, thank you for bearing with us, and, and if you would just keep bearing with us a couple more weeks until we figure things out, but we're really, really grateful and excited for you know, what God's doing in our midst right now. Uh, with that said, um, this is uh, our last week on our Do Small Things series. The idea of this series is what are small things, like small changes that we can make, we can incorporate into our lives, that if we commit to them, they could actually make a huge difference throughout our year. We talked about uh, making your bed, <laughs> which was about developing healthy habits, like reading the scriptures at least four times a week and, and praying and seeking God. Uh, we talked about calling your mom. Uh, it's all about, you know, having a better communication skills and communicating better with the people in our lives. Last week, uh, Chad talked about eating your broccoli, which is not about eating your veggies, although you should, uh, but it's about the idea of what would happen if we decided to open up our lives to people by sharing meals with them and uh, leaning into the idea of fostering community with others. Today, we're going to close our series by talking about taking a nap. Now, you might be asking yourself, what's so spiritual about, about this is the one everybody loves, right? Let's take a nap. Um, and you were going to under what's the spirit of taking up. We're going to get there. But, you know, as Chad's been doing the last few weeks, I wanted to find out, are there actually, like, physical benefits to taking a nap? And I found an article on the New York Times from last year. And the beginning of the article, the author, like, links to some studies that says, that shows that, you know, uh, taking a nap can help you think more clearly, react more quickly. It can boost your mood, and it can improve your memory. I'm desperately waiting for my three-year-old to learn how to read so he can know that naps boost your mood and like you're supposed to wake up happier. Hasn't happened yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for it. Oh, no, that is to say, by all means, if you can take a nap today after you watch, you know, the Ravens banish the 49ers from the face of the earth, uh, you should do that. Now, today's topic, though, it's not just about taking a nap, but about the deeper idea of rest. And now, by the way, when I said take a nap and everybody clapped, my guess was that of all the different small things we've talked about, this was going to be the one that was going to get the least, the, la the least pushback, right? Because we all would love to take naps because we all have an incredibly healthy relationship to rest and work-life boundaries. And if we looked at each other's calendars and how we spend our time, and our Netflix watching habits, right? We're all people that are very balanced and that have the opportunity to take rest, right? Um, uh, this past week, I got an ad on Instagram for, for an app called Mellow. It's one of those apps to like, you know, train your brain to not procrastinate. And what caught my attention about this app was the actual, like the words in the ad. It says, what is revenge bedtime procrastination? It says, it's refusing to go to sleep because you value the freedom of late night hours more than sleep, often affect busy parents or caregivers, overworked employees, and people with anxiety or poor time management skills. Let me tell you, I've never heard of that before, and I was feeling like I was thinking, oh, that's, ding, ding. Yeah, that's me, right there. Uh, 
lately, uh, you know, Jack is in this age that Betam is a little bit of a stroll, you know, like, you know, climbing Mount Everest or, you know, the invasion of Normandy. Like, it's a little hard. Um, and, you know, by the time we're done with that, and, you know, we also have a three-month-old. There's all this stuff to do in the house, right? So you have to pick up toys and there's dishes to make and all that. And by the time we're done, it's like 11, 11.30 and we're exhausted. And, you know, my wife does the, the thing of like she goes to bed and I feel like I spent the whole day and didn't have any time to myself. So I stay up, I turn on, you know, TV and watch something just because I don't want to feel like so depressed that I didn't do anything fun that day. And of course, that means that I sleep less, and I wake up refreshed, I wake up in a great mood, uh, full of energy, and my wife loves it. It's great. I'm, I'm, I'm in a wonderful partner in that sense. No, of course, it's, it's bad, and I should stop and change. But now I can say, hey, honey, it's like a, a, a legit thing that I have. It's not my fault. It's Jack's fault. Um, and listen, you're, you, if you're parents, you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. Even if you don't, my guess is that you will look at your schedule and you say, you know what? between work and maybe social commitments, or maybe I'm also going to school and I have family things, I don't feel like I have a good schedule that's balanced and I feel like I could use some more rest. Um, we live in a culture that places an inordinate amount of value on work and business and productivity. Uh, back in the late 60s uh, in Japan, uh, they started noticing they had people that were basically dropping dead for no apparent reason. As they stu started studying it, they, call they called it Karoshi syndrome. And Karoshi just roughly means like death by overwork. And the idea was that people that were working so much that they were forgetting to take care of themselves and they were dropping dead from cardiac arrest or a stroke or starvation. Uh, during the 80s, it became uh, a big issue. And you're listening to me, and you're saying, man, like, you know, the, Jap the Japanese really have it bad with the work hours. Do you know that on average, Americans work 127 more hours than the Japanese? 260 more hours per year than the British. 499 more hours than the French. And listen, if you could eat a baguette or go to work, you of course would eat a baguette, right? Like, it's the French. We're jealous of you. That's good for you, Okay. My point is this, Americans work more hours per year than pretty much any other country in the world. And the point I'm trying to make is that this is a, an acute problem specifically in our culture. A couple of years, Affleck um, ran a study of burnout in American culture, and they found out that about more than half of Americans were experiencing some level of burnout at their jobs, which, of course, leads to increased levels of anxiety and depression and trouble sleeping and weight gain and post-traumatic stress and all sorts of things. And when they were asked, hey, what are the things that your employers could do to make life easier? They said things like paid time off and flexible scheduling. In other words, we're tired, we're burning out, and we need a break. We need some Rest. And the interesting thing is that the Bible actually has a lot to say about the dangers of overworking and the importance of rest and having healthy rhythms in life. So with that, go with me to the book of Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to start reading on verse 8. It says this. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord 
your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. This passage is referencing the story of creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where God, you know, makes everything on six days, and then on the seventh day, he takes a rest. And it would seem that the argument that God is making in this passage is this, that to be human made in the image of God means that somewhere we, we act like God acted, right? So on one hand, God works. Like what you see in Genesis 1, God breathing life and God making th things out of nowhere. That's work. And then God invites humans to name the animals. What's that? It's an invitation of God's people to work. So, so part of the reason why we work is because that's part of what it means to be human. And then obviously part of the reason why we rest is also because God modeled rest for us because that's part of what it means to be human. Now, you might be asking, well, why did God rest? Was God tired, right? Is God like, you know what? I made the animals, and I made the mountains, that's fine, but dude, like making those humans, that really took the breath out of me, right? <laughs> See, they laughed. Okay, I was practicing this last night on the drive here, and my wife was like, that's a terrible joke, nobody's going to get it. Okay, <laughs> so you guys got it, thank you very much, okay? Your breath, you know, he breathes. Anyway, uh, let's go back to this. Um, what, what most Bible scholars will tell you is that they think that the reason why God modeled rest is because God wanted us to incorporate that into our lives. There's a Bible scholar, Ben Witherington. He says, it is perfectly clear that God's plan always included human beings working, or more specifically, living in the constant cycle of work and rest. And we see the Ten Commandments is that God codifies that commandment to rest into the life of Israel by instituting the Sabbath. And you've probably heard that word before, but what is it exactly? And to kind of like the closest definition I can give you is the Sabbath is a 24-hour period of no work that focuses on rest and worship. Now, you look to the Bible and you look, for example, at Jewish culture, and that's pretty evident. It's the core of what they are. But until like the Cold War, honestly, uh, most Christians, we saw Sunday in the same way. Like, by the time when uh, uh, Christianity becomes a religion of the Roman Empire, um, Constantine actually institutes that on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, that no magistrates could, were basically public workers had the day off. And then also that all of the workshops to be closed so our people could focus on rest and worship. This idea of rest is built in not only into, you know, the Old Testament, but also into the life of the church. Now, why does God want us to rest? I think there's a number of reasons, but I want to focus on two reasons today. Number one is this. Rest is meant to protect us from the pitfalls of work. What I mean by this is that, so like you go back to Genesis 1, God institutes work since the very beginning. Part of what it means to be human is that we're people that work and rest. But you keep reading a couple chapters down, you get to Genesis 3, and all of a sudden things go wrong. And part of how the Bible explains the idea of the fall, by the way, if you're doing our Core 52 challenge, that's what we looked at this week, the idea of the, the, the story of the fall. 
Uh, part of what happens as a consequence of that is that work sort of becomes corrupted. Uh, there, there's a, there was a pastor in New York named Tim Keller, and he did a lot of work with professionals that, that worked in all sorts of different fields, and he did a lot of study on the connection between work and faith, and he identifies two main pitfalls or two main dangers to work. Number one is that work becomes a curse, right? That's what we read on Genesis 3, that part of the curse of the consequence of sin is that work becomes harder. God tells Adam that he's going to eat from the work of the field, but he says through painful toil and that the ground was going to produce thorns and thistles. And the idea is that work is hard. It's hard mentally. It's hard emotionally. It's also hard physically, that there's things that you can never get done, that sometimes the things that we try to start up, they're hard to get off the ground. And what that means, it takes a physical toll on our body. But what Sabbath is doing is just literally God giving you a break, <laughs> codifying a break into your life so that the difficulty of work doesn't get too bad that it crushes you. Now, there's another pitfall to work, another danger to work, and it's this, that work can become an idol. It's not only that work is hard and difficult, but now, because of the separation between God and man, the longings in the heart of man that are meant to be met by God, separated from God, we start looking to all other places to meet those longings. The longing for acceptance, the longing for meaning, for significance, the longing to feel like we're doing what we're made to do, all of those things, we start looking into relationships. We start looking into, you know, just life of pleasure. And a lot of us, many of us, particularly in this area of the country, chances are that we start looking to meet those longings through our work, that we want our work to speak of how important we are how valuable we are, how significant we are. And we think that the more letters that we can put next to our last name because of our degrees or our titles or our rank, that all of a sudden that means that we're more important, more worthy of being loved. Work can very easily become an idol. And the problem with that is that idols will inevitably try to enslave us. Let me read another passage. This is the same passage of the Ten Commandments, not, not in the book of Exodus, but in the book of Deuteronomy. If you're, if you're like familiar with the scriptures, uh, Deuteronomy is kind of like a retelling of Exodus through Numbers to the next generation of Israelites that are born in the desert. And hits some of the same beats. And this is the part when they get to the, the Sabbath passage in Deuteronomy. This is what it says. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, you have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. It's kind of like the same, you know, no one in your house should do any work and whatnot. When you get to verse 15, though, things change, and he gives a different, because in, in Exodus, the reason why God gives to the Sabbath is because I did it, right? Like, I, I made the world in six days, and I rested on the seventh day. You should do the same thing. Here it says this. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. Now, what's funny about this is that the people who are listening to this actually were not slaves in Egypt. Their parents were. 
And what a lot of scholars think is going on is that a lot of the insidious ideas that the first generation of Israelites that came out of slavery about work and the connection with God and worship of God had sort of like seeped into their kids. And God is trying to re-educate them and change their perspective uh, because the relationship in Egypt between work and worship is very different. Let me read you. This is Exodus chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing for time. But this is basically Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh to ask him to let the people of Israel go out to a desert to worship. So they're like, you know, they show up and they says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go. And they have this back and forth, basically. The, all they're asking at this point is for a break. Says, let us go to the wilderness to worship God and we'll come back, right? When you get to verse 4, it says this, Pharaoh replied, Moses and Aaron, why are you distracting the people from their tasks? Get back to work. Look, there are many of your people in the land and you are stopping them from their work. That same day, Pharaoh sent his, this order to the Egyptian slave drivers and the Israelite foremen. Do not supply any more straw for making bricks. Make the people get it themselves but still require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. Listen to this. They are lazy. That's why they are crying out, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Load them down with more work. Make them sweat. I will teach them to listen to lie. This is what's going on in this passage. There is this juxtaposition between the culture of work in Egypt and the worship of God. Why? Because the Israelites are slaves. They have no identity. Their only worth to the, em- to, 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 to the Pharaoh, to the Egyptian empire, is the bricks that they make. So for Pharaoh, anything that is not these Israelites making bricks, it's not worth doing. So worship is not worth doing. And guess what? Rest is certainly not worth doing doing and that seems super crazy and very far removed from us except that isn't that how we live our lives today in the 1930s uh john maynard Keynes, the, the, the economist he predicted that the grandchildren of his generation because of all of the technological advancements going on at that time would only have to work three hours a day <laughs> As a matter of fact, social psychologists were starting to kind of like write papers and everything about how are we going to keep people entertained? What are we going to do with this extra time that we're all going to have, right? And instead, what happened? Technology changed our working culture because now, all of a sudden, you are never off the clock. Why? Because you have this little box that you can get emails and your boss can get a hold of you at all times and you get pings and notifications and word chats and things at all times. We have no excuse not to be productive. Technology has made us slaves of time. And someone will remind you, either your boss or your coworkers or oftentimes yourself, you'll feel guilty that you have not been able to stop in to check the email on your phone because I would argue Our society is not that different from Egypt. At our core, we draw our identity and value from how much we produce. When we talk about a good person, what do we say? They're a productive member of society. Productivity for us is the ultimate 
virtue. I, I read a few years ago a story that says that people in the D.C. metro area work the three longest hours of anybody else in the country. We live these incredibly busy lives in one of the busiest places in America. Why is that? That's, I would argue, that's Egypt. That's Pharaoh asking us to make just as many bricks with no straw. We have become slaves to productivity. And I would argue that the reason is because work has become an idol. And you may not worship it. You, you may not have like a thing with, you know, work in a corner that you worship. But you devote the majority of your energy to it. The majority of your time. The majority of your concern and your thoughts go to it. Um, there's this movie from the 80s called Chariots of Fire. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched it. If you haven't asked your dad about it, dads love this movie, right? It's about these two Olympic runners in the 1920s. And one of the runners is named Harold Abrahams. And he has this fascinating line towards the end of the movie. He says this about why he runs. He says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Then he says he's actually afraid to win because he's worried that if he wins, that still won't justify his existence. Tim Keller calls that the work under the work. It's not only that you're working hard to get money and success, but that the underlying motivation is that we want to justify our existence, that we want, to borrow a phrase from the scriptures, be justified by our works. And God knows that can happen. And because of that, he invites us to rest, rest through the Sabbath is God's way of telling the children of Israel, you're no longer slaves. Don't live like one. Pharaoh says that you can't rest. But God says you can. And guess what? You're not a slave, so you don't have to listen to Pharaoh anymore. And I think that that's part of what God wants rest for us to mean for us today. Your worth it's not determined by how many hours you work, by how many sales you make, by how many times you come under budget, by how fast you reply to emails. So work, give it your best. Work is good, but how productive or successful you are is not what gives you meaning and value and worth because you are not a slave anymore. You don't have to give all of your time and all of the energy to work because the thing is that the idol of work will never stop taking. There will never be enough time. And that's precisely what the Sabbath helps us come. But there's this uh, famous uh, rabbi from, you know, like uh, turn of the century, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he started talking that he says that, that the main concern of Judaism is holiness in time. And he says like the Sabbath is in a way a cathedral of time. There's like the one religion that like, you know, all these things going around and time kind of like stretching us into direction and the core practice is that there will be this, this period of time that we protected and sanctified from productivity and technology and it will be an invitation for rest and delight. The second reason I think why God institutes Sabbath is because he wants to show us his grace. There's this passage in the Gospel of Mark 
says, then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. You see, one of the reasons why some Christians have a problem whenever someone starts preaching on the Sabbath is because sometimes Jesus has these negative interactions with the Pharisees during the Sabbath and we think that Jesus doesn't care about it. It's actually the opposite. The problem in Jesus' time was that the Sabbath had become this legalistic rule that was a burden on people. So people, you know, had to do all these crazy things and, and, and they were feeling kind of like guilty if they didn't do it and he was kind of like sucking the life out of it and feeling like another burden. And Jesus comes to combat that and the reason I'm saying this is because part of the problem why so many of us have a negative relationship with rest is because we feel guilty about it. We feel like we're being bad people, that we're being bad workers if we're not resting Enough, or we try to rest because we want to be present for our families. We're thinking the whole time about the things that we haven't gotten done at work, and we're not present for our families, and we're not doing the work, right? Um, when some of you know, like I, I pastored a church before coming here, and it was a very small church, never grew past 50 people, and it was really hard because I was the only pe- person working, so all the work kind of like fell, fell into me. And what that meant is that being on vacation or resting in any way was really hard for me. Because I felt like I didn't deserve to rest. That only if the church was doing well, I should be able to take a break. And it was like this giant way that was carrying with me all the time. And let me tell you, that's crushing. And, and kind of like what, what helped me change is that when I was starting like thinking through this, it seems that this is not, rest is not a reward for your hard work. Rest is a gift from God to you. Now, how do we do that? Um, number one, number thing is I would say we have to fight against hurry. Uh, a few years ago, I read this book. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. He's a pastor uh, in Portland. And uh, the, the title of the book comes from a conversation that one of his mentors had with Dallas Willard, the, the famous writer on uh, spiritual practices. And it was this pastor that was asking how he could, you know, Stay in ministry with all the pressures that happen. And what Dallas Willard told him was this. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry is a great enemy of spiritual life in our day. The point I'm making is that I don't want you to listen to this and just think, oh, man, I just have to, like, practice some version of Sabbath and have a day off. No, no, the problem that most of us have is that our whole lives are otherwise. It's not the Sabbath. It's the fact that. We come home on Monday, we cannot just sit at dinner with our family because we're like on our phone sending a text message about work while we're eating. That we cannot sit to play with our kids for 10 minutes without being thinking about somebody else and being pulled in some direction. That when we do get a day off, we're not actually spending the day off, we're running errands, right? Um, One of the practices that I'm trying to incorporate in my life, uh, there was a point kind of like last year that I was basically doing something every night connected to work. I'm not complaining, love you guys, but the problem is that you also work, so if I need to get a hold of one of you, when can I do that? After hours on a weeknight, right? And I was, in, I was home in my office anyway. I started noticing that my son would sneak into my office, climb on my lap, and shut my laptop in front of me. And he was basically, yeah, yeah, clap for him, right? It was basically his way of saying, I'm here and I want you to pay attention to me. And I realized, my three-year-old son thinks that he has to compete for my attention with an aluminum box. And I don't want him to grow up 
thinking like that. So kind of like rearrange my schedule a little bit. I have like one day where I will take calls in the evening and I will leave work early so I can be there for my family. And the other days are kind of like protected because I don't want my son to grow up feeling that he is not a priority in my life. And some of you need to just start making adjustments in your normal life so you're not hurried all the time. But the second thing is like, okay, what would it look like to practice rest? And we've been talking about Sabbath and, you know, I'm not, if you go like full-fledged, like, you know, all of the different regulations of Judaism, you probably there's stuff that doesn't connect with our current uh, life. But most people that study this will identify four main rhythm for dynamics in Sabbath. The first one is stop, okay? Sabbath is a time where we stop, where we stop checking emails, where we stop replying to a text message, where we stop all of the things that we normally do. Second thing is a moment of rest. Like literally physical rest. Sleep in. Take a nap. Go to bed early. And, and I was saying earlier, the problem that we have is that our day off is the running errands day. It's a day where we mow the lawn and when we go to Costco and when we clean the house. And these are all things that need to be done. I'm not saying they shouldn't be done. But part of the problem is we're always exhausted because we've never actually practiced real rest. The third thing is delight. The Sabbath was not only a time where, like, you know, you, you just stopped, do, stopped doing things and took a long nap. But it was a day where you recharged your batteries, where you did things that brought you joy and brought you life. And that looks different for the different people, right? For some of you, it's going for a run. For some of you, it's like working in your garden, like doing things that, that enjoy. You know why I find relaxing? I haven't done it in a while, but like, the, the, I love shining shoes. <laughs> it's just weird. It's super relaxing. Like, and, and I print with these jobs, and now I don't have that much of a chance to wear, like, you know, hard sole shoes that you have to shine. And I would, like, put, like, the newspaper, and I have, like, the, the, the brushes and the whole thing. And there's something just relaxing about that. What's a relaxing thing that brings you delight and joy? And the final element is the element of worship. That for, for, for Jewish people, Sabbath was a day of abiding with God, of taking time to worship God. And what would it look like for you to incorporate that into a day of rest? Now, listen, you're listening to this, and some of you think that sounds awesome. That's great. Some of you are, like, twitching. You know why? And I'm with you because we're addicts. We're addicts to our phones. We're addicts to our work. We're, we're addicts to the notification sound from Apple that kind of like has a strain. And the idea of taking a day where none of that is there sounds terrible. And part of what I'm saying is like this is not something that happens overnight and it develops. But as we do that, at some point God starts using that time to refresh us. But there's a lot of grace in the midst of that. Some of you may try to take a day off, and then you're like, okay, I felt terrible. And I was thinking about this thing. That's okay. Because part of this is just like the long incorporation and practice into our lives as God works in us. The skeptic in me, and maybe in you, is listening to me talk about Sabbath and all these things, and you're wondering, can taking a day off actually make any sort of difference? And like most things, I would say yes and no. Like on one level, you know, Sabbath is very restorative, and it's important. But I think that the, the real power of Sabbath is that it's actually pointing us to a deeper reality. I don't have time to, to read this passage. But you read in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews makes this incredible connection between Sabbath and the physical rest and then the eternal rest of heaven and the presence of God. 
And there's a reason for that. This is in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. You will find, listen to this, rest for your souls. Jesus is speaking to this first century audience and he's saying, it's not only that your body is tired. It's not only that your mind is tired. It's that your soul is tired. You know why your soul is tired? Because you're working every day to try to justify your existence. St. Augustine famously said this, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The longing for significance, for meaning, for acceptance, for importance that you think that another degree and another rank and another accomplishment will give, that's your soul longing for the rest that he can only find in God. And Jesus is inviting all of us to find that rest. Now, every week we've been closing with a challenge, right? Uh, and I want to give you uh, three challenges and, a, and an extra credit for this week. Challenge number one for this week. Take an actual nap, okay? Today, right? Today, like the Ravens are going to win. We don't care about it again because the Ravens are winning it all this year, baby. Okay, after the game, take a nap. If you have kids at home, take turns taking the nap, right? So like one can go to kids and take a nap and the one can get up. But like find some time this week to rest. The second thing I would say is like a very easy step, a challenge for one week to try to slow hurry in your life. What would it look like if this week you don't check your email or do any work-related stuff after work hours? Try it for one week and see what happens. The third challenge, practice half a Sabbath. And I'm saying half a Sabbath because we're rookies, okay? We, we're not at the level that we can do a full Sabbath. But what will happen if next Saturday or next day off that you have, run your errands on half the day, and then devote half the day to stop, rest, delight, and worship. Final extra great challenge. I mentioned this book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's not specifically about Sabbath, but it's the whole idea of how hurry is a killer to our spiritual life. And you could do way worse things with your money than, like, and, and time that uh, reading this book. So if you want to read this book, I challenge you to it. This is not something we're selling or anything. It's just a recommendation. Now. We're going to transition into communion, and, you know, I want to invite you to take out your kit. What I want to do is just give you this thing for, thought for a second. How do we think, when we, when we say that Jesus, you know, invites us to rest, and we don't have to justify our existence, what does that actually look like in our life? There's this fascinating verse in the Gospel of John where Jesus is healing people in the Sabbath, and he says this. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For not only he broke Sabbath, he called God his father, making himself equal with God. The writers of the gospel is saying that one of the reasons why Jesus is ultimately crucified is because he wanted to rescue Sabbath from being just a rule. And turning into something that gave life. 
It's actually something fascinating that he's, that the Sabbath is a day of rest, but then he says, my fire is working and I'm working. And part of what's going on, I think, the right is making this connection because he's wanting to show that by Jesus going to the cross, he's fulfilling the ultimate goal of the Sabbath. That when Jesus is hanging on a cross and he says, it is finished, it's not only the justifying work of our salvation, it's also the justifying element of our existence. That we are loved and accepted and welcomed and redeemed by God because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we do. That no matter how many degrees you get and how many titles you get and how many ranks you climb up and how big your house is and however much you accomplish your work, you don't have to do that to justify your existence. Because Jesus has done that when he says it is finished. Doesn't mean you don't work hard. It means that you can take a rest without feeling guilty. And you can say, I'm going to stop right now. Even if the work hasn't stopped, I'm going to stop. Because my meaning and my existence is found 